As one of America's largest financial services companies, Nationwide makes simplicity a priority so financial professionals can help their clients achieve their retirement goals. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrow and Lisa Abramowitz. Join us each day for insight from the best in economics, geopolitics, finance, and investment. Subscribe to Bloomberg Surveillance On Demand on Apple, Spotify, and anywhere you get your podcasts. And always on Bloomberg.com, the Bloomberg Terminal, and the Bloomberg Business App. First Order Academics on Statistics and Central Limit Theorem, Sobrata Rajapa, uh, joins us now. Without question on debt, our conversation of the day, head of U.S. rate strategy at the Derivative Force, Societe Generale. Uh, Sobrata, I'm going to cut to the chase and go a little bit mathy here. In the equity markets, we talk about a collar. Maybe even in commodity markets, we talk about a collar trend of copper, live cattle, whatever. What is your world like when the two-year yield is collared? How do you respond to a banded trade on yield in the derivative space. So basically, uh, you point as you pointed out, John. I mean, uh, Tom, you have uh, you know ten, all yields across the the curve in the treasury market have been very range bound. You're looking at a range for uh, for two years around four percent, maybe four and a quarter to three seventy five. Uh, same with ten year as well. It's been in a very very tight range. So really what that tells me, broadly speaking, is that there's really no strong conviction in the market on yields going either, um, you know, monotonically higher or, or lower, uh, broadly speaking, because of the fact that we're stuck between a rock and a hard place. In some respects, the data that we've gotten so far has been very, very strong. Uh, the consumer is resilient. The employment picture is, is relatively strong. Inflation is sticky. That would all argue for much higher yields from here on. But then you have the debt ceiling overhang, the regional banking crisis, uh, as well as rates being uh, policy rates being high and, and sticky. That would argue for, for perhaps right. lower yields over the longer run. So we're kind of stuck in this range because of that. When you are stuck, can you model out for higher in, in the case of where we are in the range right now? Can you model out a bet for higher yield and lower price? It's it's hard because ultimately what you're looking at, especially in this environment, is for the Fed to pause. Uh, we're not talking about perhaps a pause, uh, a skip, and then uh, a, another hike later on this year, perhaps. All that means is that if policy is going to remain restrictive uh, for the remainder of the year, then that would mean ultimately that uh, you're going to see a slowdown in the economy. That's uh, kind of what the Fed wants to achieve in order to bring down inflation. And that will ultimately mean lower yields. So, um, you know, we have a recession penciled in for early 2024. The economy looks relatively robust up until that point on. But then once we do go into a recession, the Fed's going to have to cut rates. So the ultimate destination is perhaps for, for, for lower yields, 
the path between here and there is uncertain, given the fact that you have a lot of dynamics to get through over the, the short term as well as the medium term. So, Madhuri, you mentioned the regional banking crisis is potentially helping to drive down inflation. What regional banking crisis? It seems like it's stabilized. We seem to swing between it not existing, not having ever percolated and suddenly still being a full-blown issue that's going to help the Fed. Which is it? So the regional banking crisis, broadly speaking, the headlines have definitely uh, abated. Uh, you're seeing a little bit more stability in the in the banking sector. But broadly, the transmission mechanism from the regional banking crisis is going to come from the credit crunch or tighter uh, credit conditions. It's going to come from a greater regulation, if you will, of both the smaller uh, mid-sized as well as uh, the larger banks. That would, broadly speaking, would tighten credit conditions as we progress through the year. You're seeing uh, mortgage rates start to rise. You're seeing real yields uh, at around 1.4%. So that's also risen in the last few weeks. So, so broadly speaking, I think higher yields as well as uh, you know tighter regulatory framework uh, it should lead to tighter credit conditions over the remainder of the year. So yes, it not, might not be a crisis in the regional banking sector as of now, but, that, but the tighter credit conditions, c- conditions are here to stay. Do you believe that right now that's going to uh, perhaps constrain yields going forward, that that's really the key feature, the H8 uh, reports that come out on Friday that determine really what that band is that yields can trade within? Yeah, I think over the near term, yields are definitely constrained. Uh, you're probably uh, going to see an environment where the two years is going to struggle to get past four and a quarter percent because that would imply the market uh, pricing out a lot of the cuts that are priced in, perhaps even starting to price in for hikes at upcoming meetings. That doesn't seem to be in the cards. Powell seems to be squarely in the ta- in the, in the camp of pausing uh, rates, at least in the June meeting, and then taking it meeting by meeting thereafter. Uh, so in that sort of context, I think two years are going to struggle to rise meaningfully from here. And as far as the long end is concerned, it's much more pegged to the outlook for growth, not just in the U.S., but also globally. China has had a good year this year for, for, for growth. GDP is going to be positive. But again, for upcoming years, you're looking at a meaningful slowdown in not just U.S., but also global growth. That should kind of keep the long end pegged and then ultimately decline over the coming uh, you know, months as well as uh, next year. More Fed speak through today. Can't wait. Bullard Bostick daily. Speaking throughout this morning and this afternoon. Savatra, thank you. Savatra Jaffa for there of Sokchen. Uh, Christopher Marinak joins us now, director of golf at Jenny Montgomery. Scott, he's not here to talk bank stocks. He's here to talk. We saw Oak Hill in the PGA this weekend, and you like live next door to Augusta as well. Very cool. I, I mean, g- give us a, a little vignette here after this spectacular weekend of golf, including a hole hole in one by the PGA Pro from California. Give us a, 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 a picture of your Augusta. What's it look like? Oh, it's the prettiest place on earth. But it's also a golf course that actually gets totally taken apart in the summertime. So when they close next week, they'll be closed for three, four months, and they'll take the entire place apart and redo the greens, redo a lot of things, certainly fix yeah. up a few trees that fell uh, back in April. But it's, it, a, uh, it's, it's an incredible uh, piece of property. It may be a place to relax when, uh, when you're, you're dealing with the bank stocks as well. Are you at any point a master's relaxation about the banking crisis, or is it still very vivid on a, on a, a Monday morning? Well, it's early innings. Uh, we have a lot to go. I mean, we still have a recession to find and then real estate uh, to work through. And the banks, I think, will continue to make money throughout this whole journey, but they certainly have issues to deal with the next three years. 
it seems like the move is toward greater uh, greater capital requirements. We're hearing that right. from Neil Kashkari today. And we got right. a little hint of that today sure. from the J.P. Morgan Investor Day. Uh, right. What did we hear from them? Well, J.P. Morgan talks about their fortress balance sheet all the time. So, you know, their slides are, are no different this morning about that. I think their uh, leadership position in the banking industry is second to none. And so they're going to continue to remind everybody that capital is king. The stress tests come out in about a month. And my sense is the Fed's going to pass uh, most, if not all, the banks, but they're going to politely ask for more comfort capital and require banks to raise additional equity. Uh, Which banks? I think the banks in the stress test, and then that will get pushed down to regional banks. So, you know, the, the, pretty much the rules work that anything that happens at the top 20 banks will get pushed down to the next 20 and the next 20. So it kind of falls from the top down. We talk about the potential for uh, just profitability constraints within some of the regional banks. How much will the profitability be further constrained and their lending mechanisms be curtailed if there is greater capital requirements foisted on them by the Fed? Well, capital is going to naturally improve for the banks because of retained earnings. And I think there's a slight comeback on on their um, equity securities just because you have natural amortization and payoffs of their uh, HTM and available for sale securities. The challenge is going to be that raising additional capital to cover what could be a future credit cycle in 24 and 25. That's why the capital, I think, goes up. We still have those unrealized losses that are not going to go to zero. They're just going to get incrementally better. Should, the, pe- should people buy individual stocks, ETFs, BKX? What, what's the intelligent way to play this three years out? Well, I think a basket of stocks across all market caps makes sense. It's not just the large cap. I think looking at mid-cap and small community banks makes a bunch of sense. A lot of those are even cheaper than the regional banks that have been hit. Uh, my sense is that there is a real opportunity in these companies, many of which are trading below tangible book value, and tangible book value is growing. Every now and again, TK and I take a stroll up Park Avenue. Bramo doesn't like to be with us publicly. And when T and I walk up... This is pretty it's public, true. guys. It's true. Just well, saying. I mean, like on air, but not outside <laughs> of the building. We go up Park Avenue and we go past the First Republic. On the next corner, the next block is a Chase private client, almost immediately. Sure. And on those screens in First Republic, they're playing Bloomberg. And I often always think of them because, you know, right now we're talking about them and they're looking up at those screens and they're watching us talk about them. Can you tell me what's going to happen with those branches? Does anyone know? I think they'll stay the same for probably a year or two and quietly change gears, maybe become a second J.P. Morgan office. Maybe they'll become something else. Uh, Most likely, it's going to be a slow play. You don't think they're just going to immediately come out with a knife and just cut all these branches and close them? I don't think so. They gave expense guidance this morning. That's the same that they had before, excluding the uh, uh, FRC. We heard from Janet Yellen that there is going to be more consolidation akin to that First Republic getting acquired by J.P. Morgan. How much more, and is J.P. Morgan still in the business of acquiring, or is it going to be sort of the other Bank of, uh, Bank of America, the other big banks? I think it might be nothing, actually. I think that the consolidation may have already happened because you have three banks that failed in, in March and April, and that represents about 4% of the assets for those big regional banks. You know, the interesting thing to me is if you look at the top 25 banks in the country, they represent two-thirds of the assets uh, in the FDIC deposit. So why do we need consolidation when you already have two-thirds held there? So I think the consolidation may be greater mid mid-size and smaller. So every analyst who comes on talks about the regional banking crisis as something Thing that's going to tighten credit conditions and actually help the Fed. Are you pushing back and saying that's not really the case because it's over? Well, I don't, I'm not sure the crisis really ever happened. I think we had mishaps in the month of March with these failed banks, but largely those were their own doing. I think the rest of the contagion that's been limited to PacWest, Western Alliance, both mm-hmm. of which seem to be stabilizing, PacWest has positive news out this morning on asset sales. 
I, I think that the rest of the industry is marching ahead. You know, we have seen deposit outflows in the industry for sure, and those may continue just because interest rates need to catch up for, for depositors. But most of these banks are lending money, making uh, a profit, and m- m- marching forward. So I think there is crider t- credit or tighter credit anyways, but it's not as bad and as, as negative as I think uh, headlines have suggested. The heritage of Jenny Montgomery Scott is Philadelphia, the mid-Atlantic states, and all the roll-up there that happened 30, 40 years ago in banking. When do the regionals finally act and consolidate? Waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting. When do they finally say enough? Well, you could see two or three mergers in the next couple of years of those regional banks, but I'm not sure it's going to be that often. I really think it's going to be a lot less than we anticipate. The Fed has to really change gears at the examiner level to push these mergers. The last two years, mergers have taken forever to close, and a handful of them terminated. Just ask TD. It's a people thing, the examiners? Sure. Interesting. Absolutely. Interesting. Master's tickets. Have we nailed that down? Yeah, we had. Chris is our new friend. Okay, good. (laughs) The odds, according to Golf Digest, thank you, Simon, for this, to garner master's tickets is a one in 200 One in 200. That's that's through the lottery. The lottery, whatever they have. Okay. I applied last year and went down Got to know people, Bramo. Do you know people? No. No. Okay. We know Christopher Marinak. But Chris knows people. He knows people that we know. That's good to know. He does, Well, it's good to know you, Chris. Thanks for being with us. Chris Marinak, Jenny Montgomery, (laughs) Scott. Nobody ever says, make it complicated. That is why Nationwide makes simplicity a priority by providing financial professionals with straightforward, client-ready resources. From clear strategies to help clients meet retirement savings and income needs to ways to cover rising health care costs and more, Nationwide simplifies planning so more time can be spent helping clients. Nationwide is on your side. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Let's go to a guest here right now to give us perspective here with all the different news flow. We have Lisa Hornby's head of U.S. multi-sector fixed income at Schroeder's. The yield move that we have lifted up, does it take us up to a collar edge, yields up to resistance, or is there something going on here, Lisa, that's original? You know, I think the market is still flirting with this idea of is there a path where things can actually be okay? And certainly resolution on the debt ceiling, which was last week's optimism or cause for optimism, is a step towards that path. Um, Of course, I think we'll we'll have some fits and starts between now and then. And I I don't think we'll see the highest end of the the 10-year range where the the peaks that we got to last year. Um, But I think, you know, I think there could be some tactical trading opportunity here for sure. What are you doing on duration? We hardly touched on it this morning. Not so much the price move or yield move, but the bet you place in maturity. Yeah, you know, I think duration, I think, look, the outlook for bonds in our view this year has been compelling. Um, I think we're 10 years, we're probably looking at a range of 325 to 375. So we're getting towards that upper band. Um, We like tactically trading, but 
erring towards being long because our view is for economic deterioration. It's kind of a slow burn, um, but I think that that's where we're headed. And so we want to be we want to come out the other side of this long, but understanding this is going to be a volatile market as it really has been for the last four or five months. Elisa, where are you seeing that signs of economic deterioration at the moment? So certainly a slow grind, but we are starting to see it on the consumer side. Um, it's it's obviously very gradual, but we have seen credit card balances tick up. We have seen on the auto loan side, um, now really across the FICO spectrum, um, a bit of deterioration. Obviously, jobs still remain very, very resilient. Um, you know, one of the things we're watching, though, closely is small businesses. You know, small business surveys have really deteriorated over the last I want to say more than a year. Um, and, and that deterioration, in our view, is probably set to increase as credit conditions tighten for these guys, particularly in light of what's going on on the regional banking side. So that's where we're focused. I mean, we have to remember small businesses in the U.S. employ a very large percentage of the population. You know, we spend a lot of time talking about the GEs of the world, but probably 90% of businesses in the U.S. are small, um, small to midsize. So their, their outlook is pretty important and it's not particularly compelling when you look at the data. We just had Chris Marinak on over uh, from Jenny Montgomery Scott, and he was talking about the regional banking crisis that wasn't. Uh, and so I wanted to get your sense of what is happening in terms of the credit tightening. He said that regional banks are a much better position than people assume. They're not constraining uh, their lending mechanisms all that much. Do you see something different or do you think it just hasn't happened yet, but just wait and it will? I think it's a again, I think it's a bit of a slow burn, right? We you know, the cost of capital has gone up. These regional banks are under increased scrutiny. I think there will be more focus on balance sheet preservation um, and the type of loan making that they're doing. And I think certain pockets of the economy will see a little bit more stress as a result of that and make it a bit harder to access capital. I mean, Tom said it before. Uh, while I was listening in earlier, uh, the cost of capital has risen and that poses an issue. And, the re and it's supposed to pose an issue, right? The Fed is doing this intentionally to try and slow economic growth, and they're doing it, but it, it takes some time. Given how resilient the economy has been, uh, has been, and given that we haven't really seen the credit stress materialize in a way as significant as many people had expected at this point, what is the risk that the Fed's going to have to tighten further? It's going to have to hike again, perhaps even in June, because maybe the constraint isn't that great from the regional banks just yet and that it will have to be this slow burn that goes on for a while. Yeah, I mean, the market is certainly flirting with that, right? We've seen the probability of a Fed hike at the next meeting move, you know, vary between 25 and 40 percent. I, you know, if we get a debt ceiling resolution in the near term, I wouldn't be surprised to see that move higher. I think the Fed wants to be cautious. I mean, if you listen to Powell's comments last week, he didn't explicitly suggest a pause here, but he did allude to the fact that, hey, we've done a lot. We could potentially be patient and see what the impact is. I mean, they are breaking things, right? There are more, you know, look at the look at the move index and where it's been over the last year uh, versus the the previous several years. Things are starting to to, to percolate in the background, and we have had several banks now fail. Uh, I don't know that that story is completely played out. I, I think that they realize that you know, there are now some risks out there that are becoming a bit more serious. And so all else equal, I'm sure they would prefer to pause. But we have a lot of data between now and uh, the middle of June, their next meeting. So we'll we'll have to s wait and see. Well, let's just finish there, Lisa. Clearly, you're not going to keep on hiking until you see 2%. 
Do you think we've seen sufficient evidence right now that they are sufficiently restrictive? Or is this a guess based on the cumulative tightening that they've already delivered? I think it's a great question. My sense is they've, they've probably done enough. They might go a little bit further because they're, they're looking at data on a lag. If we could fast forward six months from now, I said, I suspect that inflation will continue to slow and that they will get, you know, be closer to their targets and growth will be starting to roll over in a more serious way. But, you know, if we get another five and a half percent inflation print, that all bets are off. Um, so I think, you know, we unfortunately, the way monetary policy works is with a lag. And so yeah. they'll react to the data as it comes in rather than, you know, six months or 12 months from now trying to see the bigger picture. Hey, Lisa, this was great. Lisa Hornby there, the Schroders. Appreciate it as always. Michael O'Leary, CEO of Ryanair, joins us right now. Michael, great to see you in New York. <laughs> Good to see you, mate, as always. dollars It's not we bad, is it? So, Michael, tell me this. Is that the future still, or yeah. have things changed? Uh, it is the future, and things are, mar- are, are changing. I mean, I think, you know, we've ordered another 300 aircraft from Boeing two weeks ago. So, you know, we're going to grow from 149 million passengers pre-COVID to 300 million passengers by the early 2030s. So there's still lots of growth for Ryanair. But growth is getting easier in Europe. The market has consolidated post-COVID. Uh, uh, capacity has come out. I mean, we're looking across Europe this summer where we're operating 25% more seat capacity than we had pre-COVID. But the rest of the market's only operating at about 90%. So we're taking huge amounts of market share from everybody else. We're still we're head, well hedged on fuel. We're offering really low airfares. But those low airfares are, are up a bit. Like We expect our lowest airfare to rise uh, probably 5 10% a year for the next couple of years because of this capacity construction. And with the, 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 the manufacturer's challenge, Boeing and Airbus, huge backlog on orders, can't increase uh, monthly production because of supply chain difficulties for the next four or five years. I think you're looking at a European marketplace that will now copy some of uh, America in the last decade, stable capacity and more reasonable pricing going forward. Is that good for you and bad for the people travelling? I think it's good for us. It's also good for the people travelling. But the challenge is, if you look at the German market this year, for example, Lufthansa, which was bailed out by the German government to the tune of 13 billion during COVID, they've only restored 80% of their pre-COVID capacity. Airfares in Germany have doubled this year over last year. So, you know, German consumers are being stiffed by their national champion and they're increasingly turning to us because we have capacity growth. I'm taking 50 aircraft a year from Boeing because we have capacity growth. We can keep fares down. But I have no doubt in my mind that one of the big drivers of Ryanair's growth in the next couple of years is going to be the incumbent legacy carriers really driving airfares much higher in Europe than they are in the US. Are you willing to then just have a commensurate increase in your uh, in your price, just perhaps less? Absolutely not, Lisa. We're going to keep growing capacity. We're going to, we will remain load factor active, yield passive. We intend to take huge amounts of market share from every incumbent in Europe as we uh, grow our share in Europe from about 20% now to about 33% in the early 2030s. People talk about the travel boom that has really supported services globally as being a bit of YOLO. You only live once after the pandemic, get out there and travel. And if you're not dealing necessarily with the business segment as much, how confident are you that that's going to continue in perpetuity? Perpetuity is a long time. I mean, it's too long for my horizon. Next five years, it's going to continue. There's a couple of fundamentals in Europe. One, we're seeing very strong business growth. I mean, businesses are flying around Europe, particularly to kind of Eastern Europe, Morocco, Portugal, 
fix repairing supply chains that they can no longer depend on Asia. And they're looking to cheap, find cheap manufacturing in Morocco, Portugal, Poland, Romania. We're the biggest airlines in those markets. So we're seeing a very strong recovery in our business travel. I think people who are locked up for two and a half years uh, are, are going back traveling. And that's not a short term phenomenon. Travel increasingly. I mean, what really surprises me about the moment, for all the, the, the negative coverage of higher energy prices, price inflation, there's still fundamentally full employment in Europe. People are getting paychecks at the end of every month, and what they do is they go traveling. Mm-hmm. Leisure time is rising. You have kids who are all over Europe. I mean, when I grew up in the 70s and 80s, as my children remember, keep reminding me, that was the last century, we went around Europe by train. Thank you. You know, you're interrailing. Now they go around Europe on Ryanair. Uh, this really? summer, huge US flows into Europe. The Asian market is recovering, but because only 90% of the pre-COVID capacity has been restored, demand is strong and pricing is strong. And I see no reason why that won't continue for a four or five year period. Now, there'll be curveballs, COVID, Ukraine invasions, things like that will throw us off course. But the underlying fundamentals are very strong. Demand for travel is strong and supply is constrained by by aircraft manufacturers. Uh, There's a cap on what they can build and uh, how, how fast they can increase production. I've got an aerospace team with a lot of really smart questions. Here's the only question our listeners and viewers care about. It looks like the U.S. airfares are a complete scam. I looked at a quick eyeball, $60, $70 round trip on Ryanair versus $300 in the same flight in America, roughly. And I look at the margin you're making, 12 cents modeled on the dollar versus six, seven cents at, say, Kirby's wonderful United Airlines. Why can't America get this right? Why aren't you in America? One, because there's so much growth for us in Europe. Uh, Why would I want to go to America uh, when we can can deploy all of this growth in Europe? And Europe is still fundamentally underexploited. Europe is moving towards consolidation. I think the American airlines have slightly overplayed it. You know, we look at Southwest and, you know, Southwest was kind of heroic model for us when we first started this 30 years ago. But Southwest is no longer fundamentally a low cost airline. You know, its average ticket price is $110, $120 a seat. My average ticket price last year was €40 uh, Euros a seat. So I think, you know, more needs to be done. There, Don't, you know, More capacity needs to be found in the American industry. But the challenge is going to be for all of us, because Boeing and Airbus can't fundamentally increase uh, their production rates, we're going to be, this industry is going to be challenged for the next four or five years. And I think we have to be careful not to repeat what's happening in the States. We don't want to push pricing too high. And that's, I think, why our 300 aircraft order with Boeing is so key to keeping prices low and people traveling across Europe for the next decade. You could buy John. some capacity. You mentioned consolidation. You interested in that? No. I mean, you know, it's just you know, I'm buying somebody else's problems. Great. But I'm very happy in Europe to see Lufthansa buy Alitalia. Let's see IAG I, buy I, TAP. I bet you, are. you know, consolidate away. And you'll need to consolidate because none of you are going to com- are able to compete with Ryanair because we have much lower costs than you, we have much lower fares than you. So you better well, but may as well great consolidate. Great balance sheet too. So if you don't want to play the consolidation game, you're sitting there with a great balance sheet. No debt right now. Right? No, no, we, we're paying debt down aggressively. Paying it down. We've no net debt. We're, we're zero net cash. No about. net debt. Fantastic. Yeah. Okay, capital returns? I think it's coming, just not yet. I mean, we're paying down debt at the moment. I've paid two bonds this year, 1.5 billion of debt. I've only got about 2 billion of debt left. I paid that all down in 2025 and 26. I'm spending about two, just over two, two and a half billion a year in CapEx, which I'm funding out of internally generated cash flow. And once we get through that, uh, I think maybe next year, if we have another strong year and we have significant net cash balances, then we'll return those to shareholders. Ryanair, 26% debt, UAL, 70% debt. 
it's a big difference, a difference, isn't it? Just a yeah. massive difference. Yeah. This was fun, Michael. Got to do this more often. We do. I got to come back to the states more often. You see, can you I've, bring your damn airline to the states? Lisa and I are happening. getting absolutely crushed. I want to know what airfares. the secret is. I mean, why some people can offer forty dollars or 40, 40 euros? Double it, for, 80, 90. I mean, double it, eighty, <laughs> ninety compared to three hundred. It's a ridiculous. You look through history. The Irish have always been. You know, we've been transport pioneers. We built the roads. We built the railways, <laughs> and now we're building the air. We're going to dominate the skies across Europe. Oh. Come to Europe for low fares. Don't bother holidaying in the. States. Now, when you're back, we need oh, to boy. talk about a business traveller. I do wonder what's going to happen here. I remember EasyJet made a big transition years ago to get the business traveller. And I wonder if your cabin's going to change at all in years to come. Absolutely not. Over it's just my going to remain body. the same. You're going to keep the same Look, thing. Business travel, in, what's different about it, people keep confusing short haul and long haul. What's different in short haul is nobody will pay a premium for business travel. Business just want on-time, affordable, safe transport. They want to get there. Long haul, 20% of the market will still pay a ludicrous premium on long haul, which is why long haul and short haul is different. And we intend to continue to grow very strongly in Europe with a huge growth in business travel as well as leisure travel out over the next decade. And I can only do that with my beloved airport aircraft partners, Boeing, <laughs> yeah. who will now send me 400 <laughs> aircraft <laughs> over the next eight Monaco years. This weekend? No more sales pitch. Monaco I, this weekend. I, I, don't do think, I don't think they fly to Monte Carlo. I don't we think fly they to do. Nice and Marseille. There you we can drive across Perfect. the border. Perfect. From New York train. City, Michael, Guys, thank, thank you. Great, this was great. Thank you, buddy. Nobody ever says, make it complicated. That is why Nationwide makes simplicity a priority by providing financial professionals with straightforward, client-ready resources. From clear strategies to help clients meet retirement savings and income needs, to ways to cover rising health care costs and more. Nationwide simplifies planning so more time can be spent helping clients. Nationwide is on your side. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. We wake up again to another morning, anticipating, looking ahead to more talks on Capitol Hill. There are a range of estimates out there. Here's one from Goldman and the team, estimating that Treasury will drop below $30 billion in cash as soon as June 8th, but warning the following. The estimate is subject to substantial uncertainty, so there is certainly a chance the receipts could slow more than expected and leave the Treasury short of cash by June 1st or June 2nd. TK, we are taking this early June day, I think, increasingly seriously. I, I, absolutely. To me, that was the front line this weekend, and this is yelling out front, and, and maybe it is the acuity of being an economist where she put a bow on it earlier, and the bow's moving, and it's moving quickly towards June. The other thing that's moving, I would point is the calendar. We were talking about this on May 10th. It's not May 10th. It's May 22nd. No, we're running out of time, aren't we? We're running out of time. I think yeah. it's less about the mood <clears throat> of the moment 
the mood music, so to speak, and much more about substance now. Let's get into the substance of it. What's the hang I, I, I would say, uh, yeah, I would, I would go with that. And the substance, of course, is the return of the president to Washington in Tokyo as our Amory Horton, our Bloomberg Washington correspondent. Amory, there's points in a campaign where there's hallmarks along the way, not in the news flow, but maybe a research piece that's out there or an op-ed piece. This morning, the Washington Post drops a bombshell of an op-ed piece directly addressing the president's age. He returns to Washington for a debt debate, but he also returns to Washington looking at an 82nd birthday, et cetera, on election day. How's he going to deal with that when you get back there and keep asking him tough questions? Well, I think that's exactly what the president needs to be doing uh, for the public to put rest aside these concerns. He's going to have to get in front of the public, take questions from the press, like he did yesterday um, at the end of the G7 summit. And that potentially can assuage voters' concerns about his age. Um, but, Tom, I'm not, I don't really think this is a bombshell. I think everyone has been talking about this, yes. whether or not the whispers are getting now louder echoes. Um, but everyone has been talking about this because it shows up in polls. Americans are concerned about his age. But also, in the same age bracket, I would say, is is the nominee right now that's leading the Republican uh, candidate for president, and that's the former president, Donald Trump. He's just four years behind Biden. So regardless, we're going to have a president, if it was to be a rematch yeah. of these two individuals, a president ending that next term in their 80s. Yeah, and John, that was clearly addressed by the Washington Post in the op-ed piece. It was not just about President Biden. You wake up this morning, you just get the feeling, G7, what G7? <laughs> and Marie, what did they talk about? Because the president had to leave at dinner early, even on the way back, reportedly on Air Force One, had to take a call with Speaker McCarthy. He's going to land, engage in talks almost immediately. Did he ever really leave behind yeah. the domestic issues. I think it's fair to say he had one foot here in Japan and one foot back home in Washington. He even brought Bruce Reed with him to make sure that there was an individual on the team keeping in touch with his key negotiating team in Washington. As you said, he left a dinner early to have a call phone call with his team. He was constantly kept up to date on where the negotiations were, but the negotiations over the weekend were very much so on and off. Breaking that impasse last night was this phone call the president had while he was on Air Force One with Speaker McCarthy. Speaker McCarthy then came out and said it was productive. He also, uh, really for one of the first times it's been since the president's been abroad, did not criticize his, his trip abroad and just said we're going to meet tomorrow. So that's today. President Biden and Speaker McCarthy, these two men in a room. And this is how a deal is going to be able to get over the finish line because it's really just these two individuals being able to come to an agreement. Biden alluded to that in the press conference saying, I guess he wants me to get home to be able to hammer out this negotiation. Um, so that's where all eyes are. And I think, you know, there's other topics, obviously, at the G7. China was a massive focus. President Zelensky was here in person. Russia was a massive focus. But for other world leaders and their concerns about future economic risks, when the president of the United States is in the room, that question would be going to him. Sir, are you going to have a default on treasuries, which is the bedrock and it underpins our entire global financial system? So it loomed large over him. And Maria, I guess there's another way to reframe this and build on what John's talking about. Was this G7 a waste of time with a focus entirely on whether the U.S. would get its uh, ducks in a row back at home? Or were there some really substantive things that took place, in particular 
particular having to do with China, with a communique that the Financial Times described as the strongest condemnation of China yet, and really a tit-for-tat with China and Micron over the weekend that really left me highly confused about whether we're thawing or uh, exacerbating the tensions. I think this week was a key week we will look back in history in terms of a more multipolar world. Not only do you have Zelensky here at the G7, formerly this was a G8, where President Putin uh, used to think of this club he was part of in a very prestigious way. Zelensky was here some 600 miles away from Russia's Far East. At the same time, you had Zelensky in the Middle East. Clearly for Putin, he's seeing that the Middle East uh, is no longer in, a, in his bag. And then you also had China's Xi Jinping last week sitting down with five ex-Soviet states. So you can see there are changing movements in the geopolitical world. And when it comes to some substance that happened here on the foreign policy front, it was all about China. And the president reiterated that yesterday in his press conference. What this administration and the Europeans have really been able to coalesce around is language about not decoupling, but de-risking. And I asked the president's deputy national security advisor for economic affairs, Mike Pyle, what's the difference? And he said, look, de-risking means we don't want China to get a hold of advanced technology for their military. We have concerns about economic coercion and their market practices. But how can you call something a decouple when U.S.-China trade was at a record last year? So that is the framework that we are going into. But, Lisa, you also bring up a great point. Just hours after we got this communique, China came out and said that Micron did not pass their cybersecurity review. And one thing Rahm Emanuel, the U.S. ambassador to Japan, said to me was, we're no longer really just seeing China take these economic coercions against nations. They're now going against companies. So I think this was really um, a pivotal moment, really, in the geopolitical landscape this week, even though domestic concerns were definitely front and center. MH, brilliant coverage over the week, over the weekend and this morning as well. Amory, thank you. Out of Japan, following the G7. Subscribe to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast on Apple, Spotify, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. Listen live every weekday starting at 7 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, TuneIn, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can watch us live on Bloomberg Television and always on the Bloomberg Terminal. Thanks for listening. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.